Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, welcome back. This is episode 17 of the main The Rest is Politics podcast. We are still riding high in the charts, number one. And today we're going to get through some pretty significant by-elections. We're going to go through strikes. We're going to talk a little bit about more about what Labour can and should do. We're going to cover France. We're going to cover Colombia and Latin America. And we're going to also talk about this mysterious vanishing of a story about Boris Johnson trying to get a £100,000 job for his then mistress at public expense. What a disgusting human being he is. But we'll come back to that. Rory, let's kick off with uh, by-elections. Have you got any great by-election memories? Well, I think the the, the one that meant uh, most in my career was the election that happened in Cumbria in 2019, which Trudy Harrison won in Copeland. So that had been a constituency which had been held by Labour almost unbroken for 100 years, particularly the west coast edge of Copeland, ex-mining communities. And it was the election which triggered Theresa May into holding her general election. Sorry, I said 2019, I meant 2017. So this this was fascinating. So we were out on the doorsteps and it was almost unheard of. In fact, people calculated that in 150 years, a sitting government had not won a by-election in this kind of circumstance. And what it did, and this is why it's going to be relevant to these two by-elections coming this week, which we're going to talk about, Wakefield and Tiverton, is that it completely changed the view of the party. It took Theresa May from a situation in which she'd been saying that she wouldn't hold an election to deciding that she could win an election. And of course, it was an election in 2017 that she effectively lost losing her majority and basically destroying her entire Brexit project and leading to Boris Johnson. So the combination of that by-election and then the long walk in Wales with her husband, she came back, we're going for an election, she thought she was invincible and she she really never recovered from that. And and, and that's one of the reasons why we're in the mess we're in now. Yeah. And, and Alistair, just, just very quickly, just to, sorry, I didn't explain it very well, but just to explain what happened there. So Trudy, who was a, a local mum, basically, in Copeland, took this seat against all the odds. And I think the reason people were surprised was was because Theresa May seemed to be doing so well in 2017 on the doorsteps. People liked the sense of dignity. They liked the sense of seriousness. That also contributed to her running a disastrous election, almost a presidential election under her name. But mm. the other thing is that in retrospect, it was the beginning of the cracking of the Red Wall. It was the sign that a lot of these traditional Labour seats 
because of Brexit, we're likely to go Conservative. Sorry, back to you. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that I, I can remember by-elections going way, way, way back to the 80s when I was a journalist, because back then, by-elections were huge in the media. They were like covered almost like many general elections. You had press conferences every single day. You had senior national figures who sat alongside the candidate. I remember Brian Gould and uh, Bruce Grocott was always in charge of sort of managing the Labour candidates' media. And you had to, you know, what they exposed was some of the problems the parties had. So I remember there was a whole succession of by-elections where the Labour leadership wanted kind of candidates in their image. And they ended up with like Peter Tatchell was one of them. There was a woman called Deirdre Wood, I think it was, in Greenwich. There was a guy up in Glasgow. I can't remember his name, but it was a, it was a, it was a Labour SNP fight up in Glasgow. I think his name was Gillespie. And he had the, he had the letters King Kong tattooed on his <laughs> knuckles, which was at the time Neil Kennett was trying to project a sort of more modern image of the Labour Party. It was quite difficult. But now, and of course those, that was the area when, if you know the journalist Michael Crick, he really made his name kind of harassing by-election candidates, forcing them to kind of give interviews, take positions. Now, I've got to be honest, I don't think I could name any of the candidates in these two by-elections, because all you hear about is this, how will it affect the national picture, a vote on Boris Johnson, a vote on Keir Starmer. And we've lost that centrality of by-elections to the debate, other than as kind of little symbols of what's going on nationally. Yes, and I think there's a sense in which we maybe put... It's fascinating how little um, emphasis we put on the individual qualities of those candidates. We assume that the national polls will determine it. I don't think anybody commenting on it thinks that if you had a really strong local candidate, they could turn it around. Which, you, which by the way, we had Kim Ledbetter. When, I mean, obviously, different situation. She was standing in for her, for her sister uh, who'd been murdered. And it, it was like, you know, obviously, it was a different set of circumstances. However, with these two, I was, I was doing this TV thing the other day and I got in the back of the car. And I'd actually been, it's a program about politics and we were testing some members of the public about whether they could make a speech. I got in the, and they were okay. They were quite good. I got in the car and the first two things I saw were the Tory candidate in Wakefield, who was again, whose name I can't remember, who was doing this interview where he suddenly out of nowhere talking about the candidate that he was, the MP he was replacing, he was going to jail for child abuse, sexual abuse. He suddenly, he suddenly introduced Harold Shipman into his quote <laughs> about why we should maybe forgive a bit. And, you know, so it, was, Sh- it, was, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? He said, um, he said just because Harold Shipman murdered lots of people doesn't mean we don't go to see a GP. Um, but it was a really bad analogy. It might have what worked. What was that about? Well, I think obviously it was one of those things that you kind of say to a mate over a drink and it sounds fine. And then you say it in public and you suddenly realise it sounds horrible. And then I saw the, the Tory candidate in Tiverton, again on social media, doing this Q&A with the public, defending Boris Johnson as a moral, ethical person. And she was so patronising to the audience. And it was quite a big room. It was like a hustings. It was quite a big room. A lot of people in there. And there was the camera sort of panned to the, the audience. And I saw some of them literally wincing. And I think they were probably Tory supporters who thought, oh, my God, how is she doing this? You know, so the uh, candidates have got to be stronger. And, and Alistair, just, just to flip this around, very, very unfair question for you, because it's something you would never, ever want to do. But if you were a Tory candidate running in one of these by-elections, what is the least damaging way of handling the question on Boris Johnson? So let's say I said to you, Alistair, you're running as a Tory candidate. Do you think that Boris Johnson is a beacon of moral integrity? I would say, if I was the candidate, I would say, well, I'll choose my words, not yours. 
Yep. I would I would say that he's uh, for all the faults that we hear so much about, he's still got extraordinary strengths. I see that when I when he comes up to the constituency that yes, there are some people who are going to come out and boo him, and I've seen that, but I also see these people, and in the end, he's doing this and he's doing this and he's doing this. And if they keep pushing you, keep interrupting and saying, "But Alice, you're not answering the question: Is he a beacon of moral integrity?" How do you get out of them asking the same question six times? I would, I, I, I would say um, I'm not going to choose those words uh, and be, because, you know, he's done things which have clearly upset and offended quite a lot of people in this country, including this constituency. But I'm standing here to represent this constituency, to represent the Conservative Party, da, da, da. So I wouldn't say yes and I wouldn't say no. Gotcha. By the way, the truthful yep. answer is he has got no moral integrity <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> I'll tell you, the, the, other thing, the other thing about by-elections is that I think the parties, as you said about, um, you know, they, they can be, you can exaggerate the consequence. But at the same time, I can remember once being in Washington in opposition. We were doing a visit in opposition, seeing Clinton, and, and there was a by-election. I think it was in Dudley. I think it was in Dudley. And Fiona Gordon, who was our regional organiser in the West Midlands, and she phoned me. It was about midnight UK time. And the result, she knew, she'd seen how the result was going. We'd been sort of laying expectations for a kind of narrow win in what was a, a conservative held seat. And she basically phoned me up and said, you know, it's massive. We are, it's massive. And I remember Tony was at this dinner with all these sort of, you know, big American political figures. Clinton wasn't there, but there were secretaries of state yeah. and there were foreign ambassadors and so forth. And I remember going in and just sort of whispering to him, we've absolutely rinsed them. Uh, and he sort of goes, what do you mean? And I said, it's going to be massive. And he was desperate not to sort of just go, yes, but I knew what he was. <laughs> and I think it was one of those moments where we thought, do you know what? We can really win this big. It's a huge thing, isn't it? The, another sort of random fact is there used to be many, many more by-elections. One of the ways in which we can tell that politics is becoming, as it were, more professional is that the number of by-elections from about, I think it's about 1880 to about 1980, the number of by-elections between parliaments halves every parliament. Mm. In the parliaments back in the 19th, early 20th century, you'd have sort of 100, 150 by-elections between parliaments. Yeah. And, and that's because people didn't see politics as something that they were going to stick in for a long career. It was much more normal to, to step down. And, that, and you had very different candidates. Nowadays, the only candidate you'd run in a by-election, obviously, is a deeply local person, often a local councillor. But they would do things like run Winston Churchill and Dundee. Well, you yeah. know, people like me and Tony Blair who aren't local candidates running in places, you wouldn't do that mm. in the by-election today. But also, also, I think the other thing that's happened is that because there are more younger people going into politics, younger, which I think is a good thing, but it means that there are fewer deaths. Um, I'm very surprised that there haven't been conservatives over the Boris Johnson thing who haven't just said, I can't put up this anymore, I'm, I'm actually going. Uh, and, and I'm really surprised that has, have there been any who just sort of sort of no, there haven't, and there's huge pressure on the whips to prevent it. Of course, that's when they really start bribing and yeah. trying to offer you knighthoods and peerages if you'll just hang on, because it's catastrophic for them to have a by-election. They, mm. I remember David Cameron's basic joke with me all the time when I was going to places like Libya was always, please, please don't trigger a by-election. <laughs> don't fall out of the sky. Yeah. Listen, what do you think about um, how much in both Wakefield? and Tiverton, how much do you think there will be tactical voting? And how much do you think Labour in Tiverton and the Lib Dems in Wakefield will actually be covertly encouraging it? I think there will be tactical voting. Um, it's a very interesting, though, to, to understand. I mean, obviously, tactical voting is when you don't vote for the party that you really prefer. You vote for another party in order to get rid of 
get rid of another party. So let's say I was a a, a Labour supporter and I thought the Lib Dems had a better chance in Tiverton, I'd vote Lib Dem. Um, one of the questions I guess that people often ask is, why is this covert? You remember there was a sort of thing which we discussed in one of our first episodes where the Tory party chairman wrote a very aggressive letter accusing mm. Labour of tactical voting. <laughs> and he clearly thought this was a kind of big deal. Um, and it's difficult understanding. Have you got a sense on why he thought that was such a big deal and why he thought he could get a public relations hit by accusing people of doing it? I don't know why he did that, but I, I do sort of understand why parties find it so difficult to encourage it overtly. Because, you know, you've got a situation where in Tiverton at the moment, there is a Labour candidate. I don't even know the name. He or she is going around knocking on doors and putting leaflets through doors and trying to get people to vote for them. Now, if I, I've got to be honest, if I was that candidate... I'd kind of stay at home. Um, I, but, but that's why it's difficult, because you're basically saying, well, don't vote for our candidate. And you're also saying, I guess, if you're Labour or Tory or the Lib Dems, you're saying we are no longer a national party. But I think for these by-elections, look, I think the Tories are really trying to set expectations. I mean, Tiverton, if they lose Tiverton, it is absolutely massive. OK, it would be one of the biggest defeats ever. But they're already sort of setting it. Oh, well, we'd expect to lose this by-election. I think actually Wakefield feels to me like Labour will win. Tiverton, I think this is probably still uh, less clear. The, the Labour candidate, by the way, I shouldn't do a disservice. She's called Liz Pohl. So she's going around trying to get votes. And I would just say, Liz, just kind of have a couple of days off and try and, <laughs> try, and, try, try, and try and lose your deposit and, uh, and the party will actually love you for it. And the, pro- yeah, the, the, the problem is trusting the party to love you. I think one of the other things that makes candidates so angry if they suspect that's happening. I mean, I, I remember with colleagues that it was often um, the, not, not necessarily tactical voting, but just a sense that somebody in head office had decided that your seat wasn't a priority and all the money and all the resources were going to other seats when you felt you had a chance of doing it. And you have yeah. to feel you've got a chance of doing it, otherwise you can't get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. And then they would feel that the party would then punish them for not getting a great result in the election mm. um, rather than being forgiving. Listen, Rory, can we, can we just talk a bit about, um, before we do strikes, can we just talk briefly about, I sent you that polling presentation for, that Peter Kellner has written yeah, which actually is is running in the in the New European this week. It's very very long. It's very very detailed. But I thought it was incredibly interesting because he was basically saying that there are these two types of voter. He called them. I hate these labels, but let's go with it. He called one is Joe, who's kind of over fifties, working class, lives in the north, voted Brexit, switched to the Tories recently, used to be rock solid Labour, and then you've got Jenny, who's a young, European minded, professional, liberal minded, etc. And his Peter's take, and I'm afraid I agree with it, is that at the moment, Labour are mistaken, in my view, putting all their eggs into the Joe basket and taking Jenny for granted. And Peter's arguing that actually, if we stop treating Brexit and immigration as issues of national and cultural identity and see them as issues of social and economic realities, that Labour actually can build a coalition that goes for both. I highly recommend it. I think there's a couple of other interesting things he says in the article. One of them is that Jenny, in the 1980s, he says, would have voted Conservative. The Jenny of the 1980s. Of the 1980s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. who would have been born in the, in the late yeah. 50s, early 60s. And Joe would have voted And Joe would have voted Labour. And that yeah. what's happened is that the default has swapped. Jenny now, very obviously, professional person, Almost all professional people, Peter Kellner says, as a sort of general, um, I mean, obviously it's not true of everybody, but generally speaking, professional people voted conservative in the early 80s. And generally speaking, professional people 
vote for Labour or the Lib Dems now. Yeah. And essentially the, the Joe vote, which is a working class Northern vote, of course, is, is voted Brexit more than it voted Remain mm-hmm. and therefore voted more for Boris Johnson 2019 after. The problem, though, that he points out is it's incredibly difficult to come up with a program that appeals to both Jenny and Joe. And he acknowledges that. And I think he tries to come up with a, an argument on how you could do it. But it's really tough. I mean, those are two quite different groups. I, 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 listen, it is tough, but I really don't think it's impossible. And I do think it's easier. I think the big point he makes that I really agree with, and I've been trying to say this, and I think because I'm so identified as a sort of, you know, absolutely can't stand Brexit, et cetera, et cetera, I, I'm probably the, 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 the one of the worst people to say it, but I think Keir Starmer can say it, which is basically we've got to stop falling into these culture war traps, stop seeing Brexit as an issue totally of national identity. It's an issue now of ec- our economic future and our economic strength. Whether we like it or not, we are going to have to develop good trade relations. And I think what's really interesting in his polling is that even amongst the Joes, even amongst the Leavers, they don't have any longer have Brexit as the sort of driving interest in their politics. And two to one of them, that's of the vote, the people who voted Leave in the North, two thirds of them do accept that Brexit is going badly. But interestingly, David Canzini, who's the kind of guru, election guru in, in Boris Johnson's number 10. Yeah, who, who helped Scott Morrison to defeat, by the way. Yeah, is in, on the record saying the next election is going to be about Brexit. I think he had a meeting in number 10 where he said, anyone who thinks the next election isn't about Brexit, leave the room. Well, so- he's, he's making a mistake. He's making a mistake. And I'll tell you, they go on about these Aussies, about how great they were. I told you, Linton Crosby, the worst, our easiest campaign was 2005 when Linton Crosby was in charge of that campaign. And they've just been in charge of Scott Morrison. They think they're absolute geniuses. And I think Labour are too spooked by this idea of these great Aussies and what have you. Labour can get a strategy. And I honestly recommend that they get the Peter Kellner piece and they really, really focus on it. Now let's talk strikes. Yes, question. Gordon McEwen, where do you both stand on what should, shouldn't be run by the state, railways, utilities, etc.? Uh, let's start with schools. Are you fully now? You're not just against Eton. You now want to get rid of all private schools. I, I think I would look. I, I, it's not going to happen, but I do think if you look consistently at the Pisa, Pisa League tables, the countries that are always there or thereabouts at the top, you know, Canada, Finland, uh, Singapore, that the private sector is minimal to zero. And so, but I mean, let's look, let, that's just me going off on one. Let's just talk about, I guess, the strike, this is about, about the strikes. Look, I don't have an ideological private v public. I don't buy this idea that just because it's public sector, it is, it is going to be better. But I do think railway privatization has been a bit of a disaster in terms of, uh, the, the outcomes. Often looking, I love railways. I love going on the train. And, you know, most of the journeys I do, which are long distance for football matches or up to Scotland, most of the time it's really, really good. Okay. But I think when you talk to people who are having to commute every day, I think the railways are a bit of a nightmare. They're incredibly expensive. The prices are very variable. And I think about these, these strikes. Again, I think the Tories are trapped in that sort of, you know, Daily Mail, Sun type language about, you know, union barons and all this stuff. We're talking here about people who are, for example, the cleaners who are members of RMT, who are very, very poorly paid, haven't had a pay rise for three years and are now facing double digit inflation. If a union's not going to fight for them, what is the purpose of a trade union in the first place? And this idea that you know, nobody should ever consider industrial action. Yes, it should be a last resort. But if you look at the way this whole thing has been handled, 
the Tories are just sort of, I mean, I thought Keir Starmer was right in the Commons when he said to Johnson, we don't want this strike, but I get the feeling you lot do because they want more division. I, I think they may do because I'm afraid they've spotted that the public is not on the side of these strikes and that it would be a big, big mistake, whatever you think personally, but a really big mistake for Labour to weigh in hard behind the RMT on this. And, and I, I saw, you know, we talked about West Streeting on Question Time with me. Mm. He's had to now, I think, come out and apologise for what he said and try to distance himself from his apparent support for the mm. RMT. Mm. I thought that was, that. look, I, I, I'm not saying I support the strike. I am saying that I think that this debate is so skewed. We talked about this. I mean, I was, I was talking this week, I was interviewed by a German newspaper, Süddeutsche Zeitung, and we were talking afterwards. It's the guy who's only been here for a year. It was fascinating to talk to him. I actually want him to write a piece for the New European because he just had such an interesting view about the British media, its hold on our culture and so forth. And he, but he was making the point about, you know, when you have a big strike in Germany, you have a real analysis of what the issues are. Whereas here it's about, is it good for Labour? Is it bad for Labour? Is it good for the government? Is it, it's all about politics rather than the fact. I mean, have you seen an interview anywhere with a cleaner on the trains and asked them how much you're making? Well, What's the, it the been inter- like? In, the interesting thing, Alistair, or have you seen an interview with people pointing out that the signalmen are getting £44,000 a year, that the drivers are on four days contracts where they only have to drive four days a week? And on Southern, until recently, they were having to get overtime if they ever drove on the weekends. So the point is, even in our conversation, even in our conversation, we're getting, it's, it's already rapidly going yeah. from the facts and figures into the big politics. So your friend is right, but we're playing it out. I want you back to the facts. You, for example, threw in the train, di- train drivers. The train drivers in the main are members of ASLEF. It's a different union. This is about cleaners. Yes, it's about signalmen and women. But I just think that I wish we could have a more mature debate about our industrial relations. And I do feel with this government, we had a question, I don't know if I can find it, and it was anonymous for obvious reasons, but we had a question which I was going to raise tomorrow, but I'll do it now. It was from a police officer who said that when you are treated as badly as we feel treated by this government, then don't be surprised if the issue of whether the police should actually have the right to withdraw their labour becomes a live issue. I do think there's a problem about the way this government treats people. And the point about inequality as well, I know we're going to go and talk about Colombia and the Colombia elections, but the fact is that the rampant inequality. So when people look at the how much money has been made by these train companies since privatisation, how many of these so-called fat cats but, but, but Alice, have become I think, fatter I think and fatter the, and fatter? The risk, the risk is, and it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult one, and I think there's a reason why Labour's being cautious about not going down this path. Because I, get, I do get Because a get lot that. of the extreme poverty in the country, a lot of the inequality is with people who aren't unionised. Ah, and there's a, there'll be a lot, of, but it's a, it's a fundamental fact. We're looking at where the real misery is and where people are really suffering. It's not members of the RMT. So I think the trying to frame this as oh, we've some got of them a back- are though. Some of them are. No, some of them are, Rory. If you think about, it, you're on you're on very you're a cleaner on a train. You're pay, you're you're paid maybe the minimum wage, maybe just above. You've got two kids. You've got three kids. You've got you know you're trying to. You've had COVID. You've had you've got the cost of living crisis. You've got double digit inflation. These people are scared. They're scared. And the inequality is growing. The biggest issues of inequality, the people who are worst off in our society are generally not members of unions. And and I think the risk of weighing in behind, for example, the police federation and talking about the police going on strike, the risk of a lot of this is that we get into the conversation we had last time, which is about the fact that some of these organizations are in a monopoly position. Yeah. And we'll be back to the 1970s again. I mean, that's well, I what people say, are going to get say, back, scared back, by. Yeah. Back to the question about, I mean, look, I would, the, w- w- what should the state run? The state should r- definitely be running the military, definitely be running the police. 
definitely be running, but maybe can allow independent oversight and some role for the private sector in all of our public services. But I do think you're underestimating just how many people are what you call working poor. And I do say to people, oh, look, I've, I'm new Labour to the core, and I always felt the, late, the unions maybe had too much control within the Labour Party, etc. But to any individual out there who's struggling at the moment, if you can, and it's relevant to your job and the work you do, for heaven's sake, join a trade union. Right. We're going to move you on sh- now. You, sh- you should become a member of the National and International Union of Podcasters. Exactly. We'll, we'll start one. We'll start one. So listen, should we do a bit of Columbia? Yeah. Sue, I just wanted to, to touch on this for a second. I mean, I, I think we, we talked about this a little bit, and I think we've got some questions coming in behind this. We talked about your experience of the FARC and Santos and the peace deal and all of that in 2016, and he got a Nobel Prize. Then we talked about the way in which actually he was, his his movement was effectively swept from office by uh, Uribe, who'd been his predecessor, and the kind of conservative faction took over again. And now we're back in a situation in which there was an incredible standoff between a right-wing populist and a left-wing populist. And the person who presented themselves as the moderate center-ground guy who'd been a good mayor of Medellin, technocrat, suddenly found himself yeah, facing, on the one hand, a kind of 77-year-old businessman who punched a councillor in the middle of parliament, took a law and said he was <laughs> going to wipe his ass with it. And on the other hand, uh, another guy who had been a member of an urban guerrilla group that had... Mm taken over the parliament, killed 92 people, kidnapped people. He'd been to jail. Been Been to jail and is now the president. Mm. And he's the president with – and when people say, oh, it doesn't make any difference if you vote, he won by 0.5%. So if the other guy, the arse-wiping (laughs) 77-year-old Trumpian who once expressed his support for Hitler, just a few more votes, just a few more thousand votes in certain places – and Hernandez becomes the, the 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 president. So this guy couldn't. He could the the extremes could not be more marked. And it's a little bit like the other, of course, massive election at the weekend was in France. And of course, Macron lost his majority because of the extremes, both of Le Pen on the right and Mélenchon on the left. And this guy Petro is very much in the kind of Mélenchon, Corbyn kind of space. Um, they sucked so many millions of votes away from the centre, and Macron's lost his majority, and France becomes a very difficult place. To govern. The other thing in Colombia, which was fascinating, so he's the first left-wing leader they've ever had, but his deputy, and who ran very much on the ticket, a woman called um, Marquez, Francia, Francia Marquez, she's called. She's an extraordinary story. She's the first um, Afro-Colombian. She's black. She's also, she started life as a cleaner. She became an environmental activist, so she took on the big mining companies and all that sort of stuff. She's incredibly sort of strong and very, very strident in her politics. Um, so that's going to be an, inc- and, and he ran with her very, very, very much on the ticket. So how they bring the country together with that level of division, God only knows. And, and, and I think it's sort of just, just before we go to the break, I mean, I think it's fascinating Latin America, how this seems to be repeated and repeated both in the left, right standoffs and the fact that candidates seem to be getting more and more populist that often the people who are being elected have very little governing experience. I was, I was just in Chile at the beginning of the year. And there, there's this amazing guy called Gabriel Boric, who, mm. like a classic student activist, kind of shaggy beard, shaggy hair, got in at the age of 35. He's ama- you know, talks very openly about his mental health issues, took a few months off parliament because he was yeah. struggling. Um, Pedro Castillo, who's just come in in Peru, who's kind of openly Marxist, yeah. I mean, it's, and I wonder whether 
Latin America maybe historically is an exception or whether it's a sign of where things may be going across many other democracies, this increasing polarization? Well, the polarization, definitely, but maybe because the pendulum in Latin America was in general very, very far to the right, to authoritarian rule, it's swinging back. But also, I wouldn't underestimate the role in Latin America of four years of hearing from the world's pin-up global demagogue, Trump, about how vile these sort of rapists and murderers were who were constantly trying to sort of invade America. I think he's fueled a lot of this as well. Um, just one final point before yeah. we leave the outside, the global picture. Do you remember a few weeks ago we talked about this German biography of Xi Jinping that I'd read? Yes. And I was bemoaning the fact there wasn't a good English language biography. Well, lo and behold, the publisher got in touch with me last week. It's being translated into English and it's coming out in September. Polity books, well done, I say. Fantastic. Great. <laughs> Everyone must read it. I will read it. Time for the break. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. So welcome back, part two of episode 17 of The Rest is Politics, main podcast. And we're going to talk a little bit about, about the press, which is uh, highly relevant at the moment because, as it happens, the paper that is sponsoring the podcast this week, The New European, broke a very, very, very significant story this week. And that is that uh, The Times ran a story written by Simon Walters, ex of The Mail and The Mail on Sunday, under the sun back in the days when I was in The Mirror, and he was a very, very, very tough opponent, I have to say. And he had a story in The Times that basically revealed that Boris Johnson, when Foreign Secretary, tried to get a job at six-figure salary for his then-mistress, Carrie, who is now his wife and the mother of two of his many, 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 many children. The story vanished, literally vanished. And then we later discover thanks to the New Europeans' investigations, that the Mail had had the story and decided not to run it. They did apparently briefly run it online, but that vanished as well. Now, Rory, what the hell is going on? It's very weird, isn't it? Very weird. And, well, I mean, obviously what must have happened is Number 10 must have somehow sat on these editors and convinced them not to run it. But what, these, great, these great buccaneering so-called great journalists, R Rupert Murdoch and Paul Dacre, that they're so easily sat upon. <laughs> well, I don't know what on earth's going on. And then I also don't understand why the other newspapers were 
reluctant to move ahead? Is it legal anxieties or is it, I mean, what, what is it that's happening? Why, why did this have to go on Twitter? I just don't know. Well, no, it, to be fair to Tim Walker, ex of man, he's, he's now Mandrake in the New European. He broke the story and he basically, since then, the newspapers, as you say, very reluctant to pick it up. Um, I, I'm afraid that I think a lot of our newspapers have essentially become extensions of the, of the Downing Street press office. Murdoch and Dacre are now the highest paid press officers in the history of the planet. How can that not be newsworthy? If that was, listen, it wouldn't have happened, but if Tony Blair or Gordon Brown or David Cameron actually had tried to appoint a mistress at a six figure salary to a senior job in the foreign office, can you imagine it? It would lead the bulletins for weeks. Probably until resignation. What what is it that's been holding people back? Because I noticed, I mean, obviously, one of the interesting things is you can't hold things back anymore because Twitter exploded. And we all all saw the story. So it was stupid of the newspapers not to report it because we all saw it on Twitter anyway. Yeah, yeah, but hold on, Rory. We do know there are other situations. We're talking about it because, we look, you and I are quite, you know, well-informed. We know lots of people in the media. Nobody has said to me there's a super injunction. There are super injunctions. Super injunctions out about other issues involving the private life of public figures. Better not say any more than that. However, on this one, I just don't know. But look, I mentioned the German interview. I did a German, I did an interview this week with a Serb journalist called Lubisha Ivanovic. I hope I haven't um, <laughs> killed his name there, Lubisha Ivanovic. And he wanted to interview me until he phoned me to say he wanted to do this interview. I didn't realize it was the 50th anniversary of the Watergate story. And of Nixon's resignation. And he, he actually, on the back of our interview, I told him this story about a conference I did with Carl Bernstein, who's one of the Watergate journalists. And we did a conference together, a journalism conference in Perugia a few years ago. And I remember Carl Bernstein is a lovely guy. And he, he said, um, Watergate was probably the greatest newspaper investigation of all time, but it's the worst thing that ever happened to journalism. Because journalists now just think everything is a gate, everything's got to bring down you, the government. No, you were you were very funny about this, I think, three, four weeks ago, where you, you were talking about all the gates that were attached to every every single thing we did. I also read a, a really interesting interview with Henry Kissinger, uh, done mm. by Neil Ferguson. Kissinger's now 99, and I saw him mm. last year. It is pretty extraordinary. Whatever one thinks of him, uh, you know, morally, of the horrors of the illegal invasion of Cambodia, of all the stuff that happened, simply as a physical specimen, the he is really smart at 99. Mm, mm, and one, one of the things that he uh, expressed was the most intense abiding loyalty towards Richard Nixon and a wow. still very, very strong resentment uh, that Watergate brought him down. Now, let's just come back to the New European, though, mm. because I thought that Peter Kellner piece was very smart. We talked about it a little in the first half. But I think mm. what it did, which most newspapers would be reluctant to do is to give real time to both show the polling, show mm. the problem for the Labour Party and show the potential solution of having how they might think about appealing mm. both to young progressive professional voters and older voters from working class seats. Well, one of the things I like about writing, I write a weekly column for it. One of the things I like is that, you know, they have articles in there. They had an article last week from Tom Swarbrick, who you probably know used to work with Theresa yeah. May, is now an LBC a really, really long, detailed argument about this drug that I'm very interested in in terms of treatment for depression called psilocybin. Um, and it's it's it was just like, I can't imagine, maybe one of the Sunday magazines, you might see something like that, even though I doubt it. So it does loads of stuff that other papers just aren't doing, both at home and abroad. And that, I, you know, the reason I think both of us like it is because we do so much foreign stuff. Um, and I just want to say this week, Rory, you, you, I hope you'll enjoy the New European because the front page is essentially a blank, uh, blank white canvas. And the headline is those Brexit advantages spelled out in full. 
blank space inside six pages on all the things that have gone wrong. And to be fair to the New European, every single edition, we call out the disaster of Brexit. Though this week I've actually decided not to write about the, the alleged Prime Minister, nor to write about Brexit. I've written about issues of disability and all sorts of other things. Subscribe to the New European for just £1 a week for the full digital package, or if you'd like to get your hands on the award-winning newspaper each week, you can get it delivered to your door for just an extra £1 a week at www.theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash T-R-I-P. And here's one for you, Rory, as a capitalist. If you want to go a step further, you can own a piece of the business because the (laughs) New European has launched a co-ownership scheme for people who care as much about our future as they do, you can own a piece of the newspaper and support their journalism if you've got anything from 15 quid to 15 grand. Visit www.theneweuropean.co.uk for a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to own a newspaper, Rory, and bring capitalism and socialism together. So that, that leads me on to something that I'm a bit uncomfortable with, and I'll probably put my foot in it. Um, okay. But I was um, in... Palestine and in Israel again last week, just came back on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And thinking about socialism, I visited a kibbutz. And mm-hmm. to be fair, I just spent a couple of days looking at a kibbutz and talking to a guy who'd grown up in a kibbutz. So there will be a lot of listeners who will challenge this. But it's very striking what's happened to what was basically socialist experiments. This particular kibbutz I was looking at had been founded around the time of the First World War by very, very idealistic socialists. But it had evolved by the time this guy who I guess is sort of 50, was young. He was taken away from his parents at the age of three weeks and put in a children's house to be, grown, uh, to be brought up with other children um, with the idea that the parents would see them, I think it was two hours a day, but that it was m- more efficient otherwise for them to be brought up. And I said to him, um, you know, was this a, I imagine the people looking after you were, were very loving. And he said, no, not really. They were pretty pretty professional. And every couple of years, we were moved on to another parent figure who looked after new age group. And they had to be, I think they started their chores at the age of five, they would stand by their beds, folding blankets, almost as though they were in a sort of military unit. And it was fascinating trying to get in firstly to what this had done to his own psychology, his own mental health, but also what had happened to these experiments, why they were so authoritarian, how some of them have since been privatized, how some of them have become very wealthy, why it's difficult to keep these experiments going more than two or three generations. Did they see themselves, did they see it as a socialist project? Very, very much. Everything was owned in common. Even today, I, I visited it. All the cars are owned in common. You just take a car for the day. All the profits are shared in common. It's, it's a really interesting, but some of them are breaking up, of course. And mm. the ones nearer Tel Aviv and Jerusalem are being sold off because property speculators are coming in. Anyway, mm. I thought, I mean, it's, maybe it's not something that we should be dragged into, but I, I, I am very interested in these sort of utopian experiments and why it's difficult for them to be sustained. Mm. Well, it's interesting, you know, if you think about it, that we talked about Xi Jinping, the extent to which, you know, the Chinese power and the whole methodology is, remains founded on the idea that they're allegedly communists. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, and, and likewise, you know, I had a conversation with somebody really quite intelligent the other day, said, you know, Actually, said you know Putin's quite he's quite right wing for a communist, isn't he? I mean, he, it's, it's like, you know, so you you can and you know what was Nazism? It was National Socialism. 
So, yeah, that's a very, very interesting point. Can I very briefly yeah. go back to Carrot? To Carrot? Yeah. yeah. Um, I did spot, I'm not a big reader of the, of the Daily Telegraph, but I did see on the BBC review of the papers, there was a tiny little story down the front page that said Lord Geit, the ethics advisor who's decided that Johnson is so unethical that he can't, he can no longer work for him. But there was a tiny little story. It just said that Lord Geit expressing the view that the carry job offer is worthy of investigation. And that says to me, he knows something which he's, and he, he was obviously fed up with the whole wallpaper thing, which also involved yep. her. So, and I also wonder whether this is another one from the Dominic Cummings grid. I just don't know. I also wonder, Alistair, with that whole thing, am I right that the current story is that they're not proposing to appoint a new one? That they're almost saying that the, the, the I, I think it's almost like they're suggesting that ethics advisor is somehow an outdated position, like one of those royal titles, like being a nursery footman. The world's mm. moved on, says Boris Johnson. We don't need ethics anymore. Ethics advisor, that's something, you know, that's some medieval concept. I'm in a new but this, world. But this, yeah. but, this is, um, but this is all part of the gaslighting. There was a clip circulating in social media yesterday. It was just a four-second thing of Pretty Patel at the dispatch box saying that this government always abides by the law at home and abroad. I mean, it's like, how do you say that when you've got this guy who's now broken both domestic law and international law? Is, is um, it, um, do we know whether they're going to get another one? or is and, or, and if he is going to sign someone up, is anyone ever going to take that job? How can you take the job? I mean, it's got I a disaster. I don't, I don't know. Well, they're floating the idea that, that, that they might sort of have. And this is what they do. Back to Mo, Moses Naim's book on autocracy. They, if the rules work against you, you change the rules, but you have endless discussion about the process. So we're sort of playing his game by saying, you know, how can they possibly not have one? And then in a few weeks' time, you know, you might appoint Carrie to the job. You might appoint <laughs> Rachel, his sister, who regularly goes on the radio and talks about how marvellous he is. And by the way, I saw somebody posted this morning, um, during lockdown, Rachel Johnson, a story, I think it was in the mirror, that she was also breaking lockdown, not least to play tennis. And guess who she was playing tennis with? John Witherow, the editor of The Times. I mean, it's all so cosy. I, I'm, I'm a bit bitter with her because she was out on LBC saying the reason I mean about Boris is that I'm bitter that he didn't give me a job. So I'd like to put on the record that I said from the moment he was standing to be prime minister, I would never serve in his cabinet and I would resign if he ever became prime minister. But you did work for him in the foreign office. I did. He was foreign secretary and I was the minister of state. But luckily, I was appointed to that job by Theresa May, not by Boris Johnson. <laughs> now, now, listen, Rory, the other place I've been to uh, since we last spoke is Dublin. And don't worry, I'm not going to shout at you about Ireland. But I did meet a guy called uh, Theo. And this guy, he's called Theo Davis Lewis. You don't get much... Uh, much more Welsh than, than that. But he, he was, he was briefing me about this whole business about the Welsh. You know, people keep saying we don't talk about Wales enough. And I think we don't, to be absolutely fair. Um, but he's, but there's this big debate going on in the moment in Wales about they, they want to, to grow the Senate, the, the Welsh, um, assembly. Um, and I think it's a good thing. I think it shows that, I mean, I hadn't quite realized that. Wales has got more, I think I'm right in saying Wales has got a bigger population than Northern Ireland, but the Welsh Assembly is still much smaller, added to which there's an ongoing debate about changing the the voting system. Um, and Wales, he reminded me, I hadn't really thought about this, Wales has been in power, Labour has been in power in Wales forever, effectively. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. Wales has never been anything but, but Labour. And I, it just made me thinking, got me thinking, Maybe Labour nationally needs to sort of listen a bit more to what, how the Welsh do things. Um, can I just come back on that? I think it's a terrible idea to increase the size of the Senate. So the Senate, which the Welsh Assembly, has got 60 members, and Wales has got a population of about 3 million. I mean, famously, the US Senate has got a 
100 members, and it's got a population of about 300 million. You're comparing pears and apples. The Senate in America is, if you like, the upper chamber. The Senate is the even, chamber. Even, the even, even Congress has barely got 300 members, and it's got a population of 300 million. I think that actually these assemblies would do with being smaller. I think the Senate's really lucky to have 60 members, and I think the House of Commons would be much more effective if it was a much smaller institution. They could concentrate mm. on more serious issues. Well, I have to tell you, the reforms are supported by both Plaid and Welsh Labour. It's only your old party. They've got a super majority as well, by the way. They've got 40 out of six members who are going to back it. But the thing that I like about it is that the Assembly is working pretty well in most people's eyes, a lot of people's eyes, and they're having a kind of grown-up debate about de- democratic, further democratic renewal. Now, I focused on one element of it, but actually they're also going to look at the voting system. Whereas look at where we're nationally, we're just stuck with this, you know, two great behemoth parties, neither of whom are terribly popular in the country. And I've got to say, Mark Drayford, I mean, he's not, in, you know, he's a Corbynite and all that stuff, but he's done a really, really good job in Wales. I think we should sort of acknowledge and respect so, that. So on, on voting, one of the things we didn't emphasise is the way in which the success of the Teal Independents, who are these wonderful group that you drew everybody's attention to, these women who won in the Sydney Bay Area, who are blue in terms of their economic policy and green environmentally and gender, the reason they came through was to do with the preferential voting system. That's the yeah. system that we used to have in the London election. It's the system that Macron won in yeah. the presidential election. And it, it's, it's a system that I think all the success of the centre in Australia has been due to that. And we should mm. really look again at a preferential voting system. Just to remind people what it means. It means that if you don't cross 50% in the first round, there's a runoff of the two last candidates. Mm. And it allows you to try to reach some kind of consensus, make sure the person who gets in at least gets mm. more than 50% of the vote. But isn't it, isn't it interesting, though, to just go back to France? So there's, there's Macron. He wins the presidential elections. We then go into the assembly elections. And I sort of think there's a feeling the French public thought, oh, we didn't want him to win by quite that much in the French presidential elections. So they've sort of punished him a bit in the legislative elections. Um, and they have, as we said earlier, kind of gone out to the to the extremes. So the French system might be helped if they held the elections at the same time, wouldn't they? Because one of the yeah. reasons this happens is that you is that the second vote acts almost like a by-election, a chance to kind of kick the incumbent government, which happens mm. with the midterms in the US as well. Yeah. If you held them at the same time, you'd probably be more likely to get a more consistent result. I think we're now um, heading towards the end of our show. Well, there you go. And I, I, we, we've, got, we've got question time tomorrow. I, I want to deal with, with one question right at the top. Anti-Socrates, Mr. Stewart's declaration of love for Mr. Campbell warmed my heart. Does Mr. Campbell love Mr. Stewart back? Uh, Look, Rory, please don't take it amiss, but I love Fiona. I love my kids. I love my dog. I love my bagpipes. I love my bike. I love my football club. But I can't, I can, I can say I like you, I respect you, I enjoy our conversations, but, but love is special. You can't just throw love out like that. I, I don't, don't rank as high as your bicycle. It's, 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 a, it's a terrible thing to end on. Right, look forward to question time tomorrow. Thank you all for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>